So once, it was very interesting, I had a meeting with a secular philosopher who wanted to get my take on the arguments for God's existence. I have... I mean, it's so weird. I've spent 10 years studying those arguments in and out. I really enjoy that subject matter. I kind of nerd out on it a bit. And um, the, so a person from church set up a meeting um, because they heard about me through uh, this, this congregant. And uh, they told, me, told the philosophy professor about me and they wanted to meet with me and, and everything. So uh, I basically set up this two-hour meeting with this guy, this philosophy professor. And we had such a good, uh, friendly conversation. There wasn't like raising voices or like, you know, red faces frothing at the mouth, nothing like that. It was a very pleasant conversation. The guy was very nice and very cordial. But yeah, we had this, this I mean, it's like a two-hour discussion of all of these arguments uh, for God's existence, going over them, why they prove that God exists. I mean, there's over 50 of them. So there's a lot of arguments, right? So we went over some of, some of the few of them. And uh, he finally admitted after... It would, Sometimes it was, took, a, took a long time, but after two hours, he admitted to me that there were plenty of clear arguments for the existence of God and that, that there were no good clear arguments against God's existence. And he even admitted to me, which is, I found this part really interesting, he admitted to me that he found the resurrection of Jesus, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, which we go over every Easter, to be the most compelling and clear, clearer than any other worldview, so that Christianity had the best Evidence. He actually said to me, I'm convinced there's either, either two views, either atheism or Christianity, those being the only kind of possible life options for me. So you get to this point and all like the evidence is going to the direction of Christianity. So you're like, are we going to have become the Jesus moment here? What's going on? And then finally, in a moment of just exasperation and despair, he admitted to me, in spite of all that evidence... He just couldn't get himself to trust in Christ. He couldn't get himself to make that step and believe and have a relationship with God. So naturally, as a pastor, I'm going to recommend, hey, why don't you go to church? Start praying, reading the Bible, develop a, and cultivate a relationship with Christ. And it was a blessing. I got to share the gospel with this man. I do hope that he accepted it to this day. I've not heard from him. It's a while ago. So, But at the end of the conversation, I'll never forget this. He said to me with just frustration, exasperation. Wait, there's one thing bothering me. One thing. How can you believe, as a Christian, that the vast majority of the human race is going to end up in hell? Like, how do you emotionally, psychologically stomach that? Like, how can you believe that a loving God would do something like that? And I want you to notice here, this guy just assumed that I believe that. He assumed that I, as a Christian, held that the vast majority of humanity was going to hell. And I said, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. And so I think we, as Christians, need to be more, made more aware of this fact that it's very, a common stumbling block, this is, to your unbelieving friends, your family members, who want to come to faith in Christ. I have received this objection so many times in my life, I've just lost count. I mean, it's incredible. My grandfather, um, who was an agnostic professor at Fullerton College, questioned me you know, one night. He said, how can you believe in a God who creates a world and then just has a plan to send the vast majority of humanity straight to hell? How could you believe something like that? And so that you know, got me thinking at that moment. And I, I do hope my grandfather you know, accepted Christ towards the end of his life. Uh, I also remember my, my best friend's father, uh, who was a, a, a Jewish man from Germany. Um, he tried to practice Catholicism and Hinduism. All, I mean, try to work that out. Um, he, he was a Hindu, too. It was very interesting. And so he would mock me 
And my friend, uh, he would call, I, I can't believe what you guys believe. You guys believe in this Christian country club. And, you know, country club, you think about it, only a few people belong to a country club, a few special people that have lots of money, and, and everybody else is excluded. And so he was saying, yeah, well, Christianity is just like a country club. You have a few special people go to heaven, whereas everybody else gets excluded from that. And so he was comparing it that. And so he, he thought this, and it kept him coming from Christ. And I can remember, he, he passed on, seeing him right before he died, and he finally came and accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. I was shocked. I was happy. I was ecstatic as my best friend's dad. I knew him since I was in high school. And so I visited him on his deathbed and had a long conversation with him. And he said, Nate, I'm a Christian now. And I was just such a happy moment in my life that someone came to Christ. He said, but I don't believe in the country club version of Christianity. I can't believe that. Like you believe it. And I assured him, don't worry, I said, Mr. Gutman, don't worry about any of that stuff. Just trust in Christ and you'll go to heaven. Don't worry. Those questions, you'll fi God will answer, figure it out. He passed shortly after. And it's just amazing. This man would hold off coming to Christ his whole life until the very end because he thought it was just a few special frozen chosen select people. That's what he thought. And so uh, this idea of God sending most of the people to hell can be a real stumbling block for someone receiving the gospel of Christ. Now, I have to be honest with you. If the Bible teaches that, we should believe it. Because the Bible has a lot of evidence for it. It's the inspired word of God. I trust the Bible over my feelings. If the Bible teaches that, we should believe that. But the million-dollar question is, does the Bible actually teach this? Does it actually say this? And what we're going to see in our verse-by-verse -verse study is that Paul uses words here that suggest that not a few or a little are going to come to salvation, but a lot of people, not just a few. Now, you probably have never heard that before. Is Pastor Nate losing his mind? Is he becoming a, you know, a weirdo or a heretic? No, I've never heard a pastor say that before. Well, it's not unorthodox. There's many Christians throughout the history of the church that have held this view. Uh, many respectable Christians like B.B. Warfield, who really crafted the doctrine of inerrancy in, in a really clear way. He was, a, he was an evangelical uh, Princeton theologian, Warfield was, and he uh, you know, really helped clarify that the Bible was the Word of God in, in really great ways in the early 1900s. And this is what he said. And he's an orthodox evangelical scholar. He says, The number of the saved shall in the end be not small but large. Not small, large. And not merely absolutely, but comparatively large, to speak plainly. It shall embrace the immense, immensely greater part of the human race. So it's not just me saying this. There's many, many Christians who believe this, and many uh, scholars, like Spurgeon, for instance, who would hold this viewpoint. So I'm not alone on this. Like no one ever. There's plenty of people that hold this position, and you can see as we look at our verse-by-verse -verse study that this is what Paul teaches, inspired by the Holy Spirit in Romans 11, 25 through 27. Can I give us context here for the larger flow? We went over these verses last Sunday. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, so the hardening ends, until the Gentiles come in, come into salvation. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, we will banish all ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be the covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. He will forgive their sins. Now, I went over this last time that this section is talking about a massive amount of Gentiles, tons and tons of Gentiles being saved, and then that lifts or gets rid of the partial hardening, and then all of ethnic Israel in the future will be saved, an overwhelming amount. 
And so many scholars grant that the phrase all Israel refers to not every single person in it, or every single Israelite, but the vast majority of Israel. That's how scholars see it, and there's a reason for that. That's how it's used in the Old Testament. The phrase all Israel doesn't mean every single Israelite, but the vast majority of the Israelites. I love how the great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce puts it about this passage. All Israel is a reoccurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without single exception, but Israel as a whole, Israel as a mass. Doug Moo, who I quoted last time, summarized it best saying, a few scholars have insisted, meaning there's not very many, have insisted this must mean the salvation of every single Jew. The phrase, all Israel, as the Old Testament and Jewish sources demonstrate, that it has corporate significance referring to the nation as a whole and not every single individual who is part of that nation. That's important. File that away as we go through. So not all Jewish people will be saved necessarily, but the vast majority of Israelites towards the, and towards the future will turn to the Jesus as their Messiah, place their faith in Christ, and so be saved. That's what this is saying here. That is how people are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So right there, you got a lot of people coming to Jesus. So it's, Paul's going to build on this. We're going to see in Romans 11, 28-29. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but regards to election that being chosen, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So it's saying in Paul's day, many of the Jews did not accept Christ as their Messiah. And so they're enemies in that sense. But at the end of the day, they're still God's, God has a plan for them. They're God's chosen people. And God is not going to take that back. God is not like somebody, you know, just takes it back. His, it says his callings and gifts are irrevocable. The Greek here means incapable of changing. It means he's not going to change. If God plans to give you something, he is not giving it back. He's not changing on that. And it's good for us to know as Christians because what does the Bible call salvation? A gift. People want to know, well, can I lose my salvation? It says God can't give back his gifts. He gives you a gift. He's not taking it back. You're going to keep that gift. God will sustain you and your faith until the end if he gives you saving faith. Paul goes on in Romans 11, 30 through 31 to kind of fill this out more. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience, the Israelites, so they now too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they may also receive mercy. So all Israel will be saved. That's what he's talking about. He's referencing that Israelite conversion that was previous and saying, yeah, you Gentiles are coming in right now, but that, God has a plan for Israel still. He's going to work it out. And God has a plan for everybody. We're going to see it here, the summarization in uh, Romans 11, uh, 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. All to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So the way the Greek is, is kind of trapped or imprisoned. So, everybody, so God has trapped everyone in their own sin so that he can release them by his grace. Now, God does not force them into that. Like, you know, no. People, people God gives them over. He allows them to trap themselves. And so the Gospel of John says everybody who sins is a slave to sin. So that's, that's entrapment by your own sin. And so Paul is saying in Romans 3, everybody's done that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody is enslaved and entrapped by their own sin, their own sinful nature, even in Adam. So when Paul is speaking here of consigning all disobedience, he means everybody. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person without exception. 
And he does this so that he may have mercy on all. So when God has a plan and people get entrapped in their sin, he's going to use it for a greater good. He's not just going to leave them. There's a greater good that God has planned. He wants to show and demonstrate his love, his kindness, his grace to his creation. Now, when you read this at first, it sounds like it, Paul is teaching the belief in universalism, the belief that every single person is going to heaven without exception. Every single person, even the unrepentant serial killer, that guy goes to heaven too. Everyone goes to heaven. Everything is just unicorns and rainbows. Nobody gets justice for crimes committed in this life. Everyone gets off the hook. And so it makes God basically like Mr. Rogers or Barney. Because every justice in this life will be paid for in Christ. And so it's just butterflies, you know, all you can eat, steak and lobster buffet. Pie in the sky kind of thing. And there have been some in the history of the church who have understood this verse this way to be teaching universalism. There are some that have viewed this verse in that way. But we know objectively from the teaching of Paul, looking through the Bible, that he does not hold the universalism. Paul is not a universalist, so he cannot be teaching universalism here because he doesn't view it that way. He tells us in other passages. We have to have the Bible interpret the Bible, not our preconceptions. So it says here in um, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9, very clearly teaching the doctrine of hell. Not everybody's going to heaven. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. So yeah, I mean, Matthew 25 says that, that, that there will be a day where uh, unbelievers will, will, be, will be forever punished and believers will have eternal life. Matthew 25 says that. And so what does Paul mean here in this phrase? What, what's, what's, what is he saying? What is he meaning when he says, for God has consigned all the disobedience, everybody's fallen short of the glory of God, we're all disobedient, that he may have mercy on all. Same Greek word there. Well, in order for us to know what Paul means, you can't just be like, well, I'll just kind of make all whatever I feel like. Well, you can't do that with the Bible. There's an objective way to interpret the text. There's, an, there's a standard way, and the way is you use context. Just like you interpret the newspaper or anything else, you use context to figure out what the particular meaning of a word is. And so you cannot make all whatever you feel like. An, there's an objective way that Greek word is being used in this context. And what's very interesting is the very same Greek word, pas, that is used for all Israel is the very same Greek word for all that is used here. So all, pas, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, pas. That's what the Greek, the Bible was written in Koine Greek. And so we, we know what it means. We know they're translated. And so this is, that phrase, all Israel, as scholars pointed out, meant tons and tons of people as a group, as a chunk, collectively, it does not mean every single person. And this is much how Paul uses kind of a two-clumps analogy here in Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, by the, as Adam's sin, right there, were made sinners, the many were made sinners, that's everybody. We know all have, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. Just look around. So, yeah, we're all made sinners we're all, by, by Adam's sin. We're all, we all have sin in our life. That's everybody. But he says many were made sinners so that by one man's obedience, the obedience of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Well, we know Paul does not think that every single person is going to heaven. 
The idea that's expressed here is that you have tons of people that are, that, that are in sin, and you have tons of people who are going to be saved. That's the idea. It's using large clumps or group collective whole kind of language here. So most everyone, and we, we use all this way all the time. <laughs> Not all the time, but you know what I mean. Uh, you know, you say like all, like you can say, okay, all... All, all people are in sin and all people are saved by grace. You can use it for majority or you can use it for everybody. And I, I'll give you an example. And you know I love using illustrations about food, right? That's my forte. Uh, so anyone who has gone out to eat Mexican... By the way, it's my birthday. I went to uh, um, Maria Benita's in Orem. And it's, it's delightful. It's the most terrific Mexican food. I gained 10 pounds eating the food. You know, I was just, I kept on going with the chips. Just endless. So I, anybody who knows, I love chips and salsa. I will stand by the statement, there are a few things better in this life than chips and salsa. To me, chips and salsa are its own food group. It's its own meal. I can have an entire meal. I actually did this in college and grad school, I would have whole meals with just chips and salsa and Diet Coke, right? I mean, that's, I mean, you always wonder, right, if you walk into a Mexican restaurant and like, could you get away with saying, oh no, I'll just have the chips and salsa, you're drinking water there, you know, <laughs> just eating it, I'll have more chips, it's free, right? It's usually free. So you just go in there, I always wondered if like a person tried that with they and say, okay, you're not paying for anything, get out of here, you know? But anyways, that's another thing. So... <laughs> You, you go to, you know, when I was in college and seminary, I was not as, like, refined and mature as I am right now. And so, you know, one of my friends would go to the bathroom and I would just eat all the chips. And the guy's like, dude, I would eat every single chip. And he's like, dude, you ate all the, the chips. Like, save some for me, man. You know, like, we were starving seminary students. Um, now that I've grown in, you know, just so many different ways, I'm such a wonderful person. I'll go out with my wife and kids. And now, I will, I will tell you. I don't eat every single chip now. I used to. But my wife, after eating a significant chunk of the chips, significant, majority of chips, will say to me, you ate all the chips. Notice how the seminary friend says, you ate all the chips, meaning every single chip. And you ate all the chips, meaning most of the chips. That's how we use all. And so the point all of this is, I know, it's getting there, isn't it? It's getting there. It's like, wow, he all that for an illustration. That's pretty desperate. Um, so all of that is leading to this point that, yeah, he's, Paul is using all in the exact same way. All of us, like every single one of us are sinners. And majority of humanity, not just a few people, tons of people are going to experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, right when you say the majority of people are going to heaven, there's always somebody. You say, what about this text? Like immediately, like a knee-jerk reaction. I even say these, these texts all the time. I mean, these are just common texts that are going to be in your Bible app. They're going to be everywhere, right? Everybody knows these texts, and they're the first two. And the really amazing thing is there's tons of verses about how many, how vast and amazing God's salvation is for people. But there's only two texts that talk about few or not many, and that's going to be Matthew 7, 12 through 14. It says, so whatever you wish that others would, would, would have you do, do also to them, for this is a law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and that is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, many. For the gate is narrow, still true, I mean, Jesus says that he's the only way to the Father, 
by faith in Christ. The gate is narrow, it's only through Christ. And it says, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, there you have it. Few. Few and far between, right there. Now you have to remember, who is Jesus talking to? You have to ask yourself that question. Who is he talking to? He is talking to first century Jewish people who only thought that they were going to be saved. The Gentiles, they didn't even believe that was going to happen until Cornelius had faith. They thought, they thought that the Messiah was going to come and basically crush the Romans and save all of them. That all the Jews would be saved. And so Jesus is challenging that assumption. He's saying, no, very, very few of you are going to be, uh, in fact, saved in this first century context. And what does Paul say? He says at this point in time, there's a present hardening on Israel. There's a present hardening on them. So he's talking about his contemporary unbelieving uh, Jews that would not accept him as Messiah. He's not outlining a principle that you can extend forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. He doesn't say that in the first place. He's like, well, how do you know that, Nate? I kind of feel like it does. Well, okay, you might feel like it does, but what does Jesus actually think? Because that matters. You know, Jesus is uh, God incarnate. So what does Jesus actually think about the growth of the kingdom? And we all, we're going to see that we have to limit these texts to the mustard seed phase of the church. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom, this is in the same book now. This is the same author, same book as I just read you, Matthew 7, just so we're keeping track here. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. Very small, very few, small, tiny. But when it has grown, it is larger, not smaller, not obliterated, larger than all, not some, all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. He goes again. Jesus keeps on going. He, he told them another parable. The kingdom of God is like a little leaven uh, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. It's small. You don't see it. It's very minute. Till it was all leaven. Till it expanded out. So Jesus himself believes that, that, that the kingdom of God is going to grow and grow and grow and expand to the point that it's bigger than everything else. It's larger than all the garden plants. It starts off small. It is very small. At first. And so what Jesus is describing here in Matthew 7 is not describing some principle that we can arbitrarily extrapolate onto the future. He is describing here the mustard seed of the church, the partial hardening phase of the church, the small part of the church here that he's going to expand and expand and expand and expand. And so Jesus does not contradict himself. He is the Lord of glory. And it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that false doctrines are associated with contradictions. So Jesus does not contradict himself. He's being consistent here. He's describing to his audience, contemporary audience, what they'll be experiencing. Now, another one, you, I said this today um, as a joke in Bible study. I said, many are called, you are chosen. That's the first thing people, another verse people use to say, there's only, there only two of them. I mean, there's not really a lot of verses here on this. So the only two people use, and this is another one. I want us to read the context, because remember, when you read the Bible, it's not like a fortune cookie that you open random pages to and just select. The, the Bible has a context to it. You have to read the context. And so Matthew 22, verses 2 through 14 
Jesus goes on about the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave wedding feasts for his sons and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell all those who invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened calves to be a slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off on to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, referring to the apostles and the followers of Christ, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That is a reference to 70 AD. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Roman armies came in there and uh, after Jesus was killed and many of the Jewish leadership had, had, had killed some of the apostles and the followers of Christ. And he says, no, they're rejecting, Israel right now is rejecting my message, so I'm going to come and judgment in 70 AD. That is a reference to that there. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, invite the wedding feast as many as you find. The Gentiles, right? Just spread it out to the Gentiles. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment, somebody who responded inappropriate to the call, someone who didn't have faith in Christ. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I guess Jesus is not a universalist either. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the context here is the first century here. It's just like Matthew 7. The context is the first century here. This is talking about the mustard seed phase of the church, the partial hardening phase of the church. The small, what these people would experience, the church was very small for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now it is Christianity is now the largest world religion. So this is describing that very small phase that people experience. And this is the point of, of this parable. It's just not to describe quantities. It's just saying, hey, when you preach the gospel to people, not everyone's going to receive it. Not everybody's going to hear the gospel and receive it. You're, you're, you're going to have people that, you, that detract and reject it. This is not describing quantities of who's going to accept it and who's not, right? Like, okay, the few, so that must be like a quantity that's going to be few in heaven. You're not to take parables that way. That's not how scholars interpret parables. You have in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Half of them are faithful and, and they go to heaven, the other half don't. Is that like a quantity or like a ration of like a ratio of saved versus lost? So 50% of people are going to heaven? No, parables are not teaching that. That's not the point of them. And I like the way one scholar, William Bookstein, put it on parables. And the parables of Jesus is not making moral, uh, he's making moral points. Jesus is making moral points, not numerical calculations. So none of these passages take away the hope the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not a Savior of like a few people. Savior of the world. He doesn't take away the sins of like a few people. He comes and takes away the sins of the world. The vast majority of humanity, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant says he dies for the sins of many. Not a few. Not a few. Many. Lots, tons. I love how John the Baptist puts it when he sees Jesus for the first time. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him. And behold, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of a few people? 
No. Who takes away the sin of the world. And the only way you get your sins taken away, the only way you get your sins forgiven, according to all the Bible, is you have to trust in Jesus. So who's going to come to trust in Jesus? Well, a world. Lots of people are going to come in time to trust in Jesus. Not just a few people are going to have their sins taken away. Lots of people. He takes away the sin of the world because God so loved the world. Not just a few chosen, select people of the world. Does it even seem plausible that world means a few select people, just a few, few people? No, I don't think it's very plausible at all. I love the way the great evangelical uh, scholar Charles Hodge puts it. He says, We have reason to believe that the number of the final lost in comparison with the whole number of the saved will be very inconsiderable. Our blessed Lord, when surrounded by the innumerable comp company of the redeemed, will be hailed as the Savior of men, as the Lamb that bore the sins of the world. Hodge is not just making this up. The Bible says that those who will be saved will be like the stars in the sky. There are, I, I looked it up on Google, I don't know off the top of my head, <laughs> there are 100 billion stars in the sky. Grains of, uh, uh, grains of sand on the seashore. You ever try counting those? <laughs> you, just get, you just get exhausted. You can't even do it. Like, I, you, just, I, you, you like do one, and you're like, oh, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore, right? Now, you will get lost with all the grains that are in there. It's so new. It's innumerable. You cannot count that. And that's what it says of the redeemed. The book of Revelation describes this well in confirming this, that the, the, the number of the saved will be so vast, so expansive, so overwhelming, that you cannot even count them. You can't even count them. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. No one can number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, when people hear this, they think, oh, well, I mean, Nate, are you, like, not reading the news? Well, if you heard from last sermon, I, I don't really look or read the news at all because it's a failure pile in a sadness bowl. I don't look at that stuff, right? I just kind of avoid it, you know? Don't have it playing in the background when you're drinking your coffee. Oh, this is good. I need to listen to this. No, don't do it, you know? News is, is depressing because they find depressing things. But yeah, you say, well, Nate, I, I am watching the news because I don't listen to your sermons, <laughs> you know? And I am focused on it all the time and I'm looking around and you know what, Nate? The world's not getting better, you know, in the sense of more people are coming to Christ. I mean, how do you make sense of this in light of current events? How do you make sense of your view that the church is growing? I'm not saying the world's getting better in like, you know, what, I'm not claiming that at all. I'm just saying the church is growing, which I think is better in that sense. I believe the church will grow. So how do I make sense of all of this in light of current events and all of this? Well, I want to point out, because people forget this, because I know it gets hard sometimes as, as Christians, but Christianity is the largest world religion, and it is growing faster than the human population. So there is that. But I don't think a majority of people are Christian. I mean, still look around. I think that's, we're pretty far off from that still. But secondly, and I'm going to say something kind of racy here, but we still may be in the, the early church. Okay, I mean, the Bible says that God is faithful to people for a thousand generations. How many years is that? Well, if you count it up, because I looked it up in a calculator, it's 48,000 to 40,000 right there. So in terms of like what King David penned, I mean, there's a, I mean it's been 2,000 years since Christ came. 
And, you know, if you count back in the Old Testament, yeah, you got 6,000 years, whatever. But, you know, the point is, is that, I mean, far off from 38,000 to 40,000 years. A thousand generations. We never think that way. So the world can grow and grow and become much larger. We may have 5, 10, 15,000 years left. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I mean, Jesus says no one knows the day of the hour. It's like my favorite life verse because I feel like I never know the time of the day. Um, I always forget my appointments and stuff. But yeah, I mean, no one knows the day or the hour, right? So I mean, like, yeah, we could be here for longer than we think. So a thousand generations sounds like we have a long time. Now, I don't know that, you know, Jesus can come back at any moment. I, I grant that on some level. But who's to say that the church is not given more time to grow and we're only in the early church right now relative to 10, 15,000 years old? And, you know, you don't know how many people are going to do an Anakin Skywalker and change right before they die. Like Darth Vader, right? I mean, you, you know, I mean, and by the way, my best friend's dad, like, I was the last guy I'd ever expect to come to Christ. But people can pull an Anakin, right? They can, they can you know, throw the emperor down the chute. No, oh, you know, and Luke, you were right. Luke, you were right, you know? They can do that. So I really, I pray and I hope my grandfather pulled an Anakin right before he died. And I, I, I preached the gospel to him, gave him the whole thief and the cross rundown, everything, right? So, you know, now people can just change at the last second of their lives. They go to heaven, right? Like the thief and the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Last but not least, I believe, and I've given two sermons on this. This is how passionate I am. This is like the most excessive thing I've ever done in my life. Actually, everything I do is excessive. But anyways... I gave two sermons on why the Bible teaches universal infant salvation. Every child that is conceived that passes on and doesn't make it to term or dies in any other way uh, uh, after term, shortly after, will make it to heaven. That's my view. Now, according to all embryologists, you can look it up, Google it, if you don't believe me, human life starts at conception, and after that point of conception uh, to, to term, only, this is crazy, 30% of them make it to term. Of conceptions. This is according to embryologist Gavin E. Jarvis. He says it is widely accepted that natural human embryo mortality is high, particularly during the first week after fertilization, with a total prenatal loss of 70% and higher frequently claimed. Some go up to 80 to 90%. So, where do those babies go? Heaven, according to Jesus. Jesus compares believers to little children, to infants. Because believers will go to heaven just like infants will. That's why he makes a comparison. It wouldn't make any other sense any other way. In Matthew 18, 14, he says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus loves the little children. He invited them into his kingdom. Jesus loves infants and babies, undeveloped babies that don't make it to term which is over 70% of humanity. Now, infants are still fallen in Adam. I grant that. But God has mercy on them because they are ignorant, just like he had mercy on Nineveh because they did not know their right hand from their left. They were ignorant. So God had mercy on Nineveh, so he has mercy on infants. He gives them grace. Everybody needs grace. No one is without grace, except Jesus. He's perfect. But, every, but they receive grace as we receive grace. They receive it due to their ignorance. So that means of all the people that are conceived, less than 30% of humanity makes it, makes it a term. And um, that means 70% of humanity right there. 70% of humanity right there makes it to heaven. Now, if you think that half of the people, of the people remaining here that are <laughs> we're all walking around, 
If you think half of them, that gets you 85%. If you go more than half, you're at 90. I mean, that's a lot of people. Now, that is an innumerable number right there, as John says in Revelation. So there will not be a few that are saved. There will be so many that are saved, tons and tons, because God's love is so big, so expansive, so overwhelming. And what do you think will transform us and the human world? What do you think will, will, will do it better? The belief that God has an underwhelming saving love for the mass of humanity or that God has an overwhelming saving love for the mass of humanity? I think the answer is obvious because it brings us greater joy and transformation. The overwhelming love of God for so many sinners, for so many people, God so loved the world, is so great. And this leads us into deeper worship, deeper fellowship with God. Wanting to know God better in his loving, kind, gracious heart. And the Bible just wrecks this arrogant teaching of men who think, we're the only ones in our church that are going to be saved. It's going to be a small, I've heard people say this, you know, it's only a small, small group of people that are going to go to heaven. And we're, we're the, <laughs> people say this, it's only me, <laughs> me and the 10 people of my church that are going to heaven. It's like, oh, okay. We, we have all the perfect doctrine. We have it all figured out. And all those other people, all those other people, they're just all going to hell. God has saved us 10, us four and no more kind of thing, right? <laughs> and so this, this like biblical teaching goes against the idea of like, we're just in our own little few special club of a few frozen chosen people. You know, it destroys kind of like this arrogant, elitist view in Christianity, this reasonable idea that we're the special ones, everybody else going to hell. And what's so interesting is that when people believe that, when they think that they've got it all together, they've got the right view, everybody else is wrong, and it makes people incredibly harsh, cold, and judgmental. You just write, oh, they're going to hell anyways. We're the only ones here. You know, I don't even try because few will find it, right? So <laughs> it's just us. So is everybody else going to hell? We got it right and they're just, you know, everybody else, you know, and so you just kind of pit yourself against everybody. You know, it's like, you, I've seen people, I have seen people write, oh, they're going to hell, forget them, you know, kind of thing. Oh, no, God's the love of the world. We should be praying for them. We should be praying for their salvation. I love the way that Spurgeon puts it. He says, I do abhor... So Spurgeon agrees with me. This is not like... I mean, how more like theologically respectable does it need to be than Spurgeon? Right? I feel like the bar is pretty... Yeah. So he says, I do abhor from my heart the continual whining of some men about their own little church as a remnant, that a few are to be saved, that they are always the, the dwelling upon the straight gate and the narrow ways, and upon that they conceive to be a truth. That but few shall enter heaven. I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell. More in heaven than in hell, because Christ and everything is to have preeminence. Right? Jesus is Lord. He says he's Lord. And he says, when you evangelize, all authority on heaven and on earth is mine. What do you think is going to happen if he's Lord? And I cannot conceive how he could have preeminence if there are to be uh, more of the dominions of Satan than paradise. Moreover, it is said that there is a multitude that no man can number in heaven. I have never read that there is to be a multitude that no one can number in hell. Very true. 
And the reason why this brings, this good news brings so much joy and transformation is when we hear how shocking, amazing, and overwhelming and stunning God's grace is, it makes us want to not run away from Him, but run towards Him, wanting to know Him better. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm quoting Spurgeon a lot. He's my best friend this morning. But I, I do, I've said this many times. This, is, this brings you into the heart of God, brings you into the heart of worship to know how vastly gracious God is. It says, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. Do you think God's a brutal, just cold, doesn't care? It's easy to sin because I don't, you know, Luther had trouble with this. He, he felt like he hated God. He felt like, and he would sin more. But when I found God so good and kind and so overflowing with compassion, I smite upon the breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. So that's why the gospel message is so powerful and it brings powerful transformation to the whole world around us and it will conquer the world. The gospel is a powerful message because it expresses the amazing, inexhaustible love of God for us. A love that we can't comprehend. It's so amazing. And the gospel is this thing that is so simple and yet so deep and profound at the same exact time. Think about how simple it is. Jesus died for you. Died for your sins. Receive, your, receive his forgiveness and righteousness by faith in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus alone. Receiving Christ as your Savior. You will be loved and accepted by God forever and ever. That is simple. Believe in Jesus. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. John 3.16 is an easy, simple gospel explanation. It is so simple, but the daily application and growth of the gospel in our lives is so deep, so profound. The truth that we're learning in deeper and deeper every day that we are far more messed up. We are far more sinful and broken than we can ever imagine. But at the same exact time, we are far more loved, accepted, and cherished by God than we can even ever dream or imagine. And it is that truth that will transform you, that will bring newness and, and life to what you're experiencing right now. And if you want to be a part of the biggest movement in human history, Christianity, and you want to receive Christ this morning, trust in Him. He will forgive you of all of your sins and He will love you unconditionally. Because Jesus fulfilled all the conditions for you. He fulfilled all the law for you. So if you trust in him, he will, God will view you righteous and as if you've never sinned. As if you've never done anything wrong because you are clothed in the perfect righteousness and merit of Jesus Christ alone. If you trust him this morning, I pray that you do so. Let us pray and give glory to Christ.